You know, sometimes I don't realize how many books I've had to read in my life till I just walk in the office and just kind of look and I think, good gracious. I, I never liked to read, really. And I think it was because when I was going through school, you know, when you, when you are told you have to read something and then you're going to have to take a test on it or write a paper or something, I automatically just don't like whatever I'm reading. I just don't like it because I'm having to do it. I'm being told I have to do it. I don't get a choice in it. And I'm not necessarily interested in what I'm reading about. Y'all ever had that happen? Just in, I mean, and I don't know if that just turned me away from reading to start off with early in my life and then through all the way through school. And then when I... I was out of school nine years. I don't know if y'all know this. I, I think I've shared this as part of my story. I was out of school nine years before God called me to ministry. So, I mean, I graduated from college, and I thought I was done with school forever. I thought I was on a track for this is the career I was going in, and it was nine years, and then God calls me to ministry, and then he leads me to to equip for that and study and, and go back go to seminary and I'm thinking, well I gotta go back to school after being out nine years and I didn't have to learn how to study again and and I thought all that was behind me and then I started having to read more books and but in the course of that process I found that the major difference in my love or lack thereof of reading was what I was reading. I found that when I was reading books about God and learning more about God and getting closer to God and reading the Bible through and studying every book of the Bible in detail and studying languages, I never liked foreign language, and then having to study Greek and Hebrew and all this, I thought this, you know, I'd have thought that was nonsense years before. But I discovered it was the subject of what I was reading, I think that was the main ingredient that caused me to not like to read or not like to study. Now, that's one of the highlights of my life. The highlights of my week is reading stuff about God. I mean, it's, it's amazing how God has just completely changed my desires. You know, Psalm 37.4 says, If you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. And sometimes we misunderstand that. And we think, well, I just delight myself in God. He'll just give me what I want. Well, yes, but what he's really saying is he'll give you the desires of your heart, which means he'll give you new desires. He'll give you the desires you're supposed to have if you delight in him, the, ty the type of desires that honor him and help you to grow, be more like Jesus. And so I misunderstood that for a long time. And so during the I say all that just to say this. Over the course of having to read a bunch of books, you'll run across things that really make a, a major impact on your life, on your beliefs, on your mind and heart. And one of those books is a, a, it's a, it's probably one of the tougher books I've ever read. And it's uh, by a fellow named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was um, actually a prisoner in Nazi Germany as a pastor. He was a prisoner. And um, he wrote a book called 
the cost of discipleship. And I, I've got a copy of it in my office if you ever want to look at it or if you want to borrow it and read it. And, um, but just be prepared if you, if you decide to do that. It's tough. You have to, sometimes I'd read a page and have to, man, what did he say? I have to read the page again. Let me just share a couple thoughts from uh, this, this great uh, preacher from years ago. And it relates to where we are in our, in our vision of, of church and our, our study today. He uses this term called cheap grace. You ever heard about that before? Cheap grace. Here's what he says. Cheap grace is to preach forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If we would follow Jesus, we must take certain definite steps. The first step, which follows the call of God, cuts the disciple off from his previous existence. The call to follow at once produces a new situation. To stay in the old situation would make discipleship impossible. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. I want you to think about that for a second. When, when Jesus Christ opens your eyes and enlightens your heart, and convicts you of your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and calls you to follow Him. It's not just a decision. It's not just a, an, an easy thing. It's not a simple thing. I believe He's right. When, when Jesus Christ calls you to follow Him, He's calling you to come and die. Die to yourself. Die to an old way of life. Embrace something new. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. I'm sure many of you know it as soon as I start saying, if, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's what it means to be a disciple. You know, last week we were in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We're going to be there today, too, Luke, chapter 9. But last week we looked at a few verses where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, you remember the three things he has to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. That whole taking up that cross... That's a picture of death, dying to yourself. So when, when I read a, a phrase like this from, from a, a man nearly 100 years ago, early part of the 20th century, Nazi Germany, he's sitting in a concentration camp and he's writing and he's suffering. One last sentence from, from Mr. Bonhoeffer. He says, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And therefore, it's not at all surprising that Christians 
should be called upon to suffer also. So today we're going to take a little turn. We're going to be in Luke 9 and we're going to follow up on what we talked about last week, the missional disciple. What does that mean to be, first of all, to be a disciple? And then how does that look in following Jesus, taking up our cross, denying ourselves? What's that look like? I'm going to read today from Luke 9, verses 57 to 62. And then we'll talk a little bit about what that means and what it means for us. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Luke 9, beginning in verse 57. Here's what Luke writes under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, now him is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you would speak clearly to us today. Speak to our hearts and our minds. Free us from distraction. Allow us to be focused on you and your word. Give us understanding that we might be obedient. In Christ's name, amen. So let's look through this uh, text today and look at these three scenarios. And then what you're going to see, I hope, as, as we discuss this text, we'll see three different scenarios with one common principle that kind of underlies each one. And each person has a similar uh, hurdle or obstacle, but they all come from the same, the same issue. So let's look at it just one at a time. First scenario you see in verse 57. Now, they were going along the road. Now, I should say that where we are here in the life and ministry of Jesus, remember last week we looked at uh, Jesus talking to the 12 disciples, and it was right after he had fed 5,000, 5,000 men, remember, uh, not to mention women and children, lot, so, so many more than 5,000. He fed that, those people, did that miracle, and then he predicted his death to his disciples. He let them know that was going to happen. And then as we follow that story, what happened right after that was the transfiguration. If you remember, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain, and he was transfigured before them. His face changed uh, its appearance, and his uh, body was, it was dazzling white clothing, and Moses and Elijah appeared, and it was a, a miracle of sorts. It was a, a, an appearance of the kingdom of God. And after that, Jesus went on and, and uh, 
performed other miracles. He, he cast out a demon that the disciples were unable to cast out. Uh, he, he once again predicted his death that was coming up. And then he also uh, settled an argument. The disciples, you know, they weren't the brightest folks at all times, and they were arguing among themselves about which one of them was going to be the greatest, you know, not, not grasping the bigger picture. And so Jesus had done several things since the uh, incident that we talked about last week. And so now they're still going along the road because, you remember, he's headed to Jerusalem. He's already said it in his mind. He knows where he's going and why he's going. He's going to die. He knows that's the purpose for which he came to earth, to die for us, to die for the sins of the world. So they're on that trip. So just imagine, you're walking with Jesus. You're one of the 12 disciples. You know he's already said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to fulfill the plan that the Father's put in front of me. And as they're going along the road, someone says to him, an unnamed individual says i will follow you wherever you go now when we think about that statement i want you to put yourself in it's going to help if we do some self-reflection along the way here you don't don't say it out loud but have have any of you ever said that to the lord jesus i'll follow you wherever you go ever said it or thought it has that ever been the desire of your heart toward God just to say, God, I follow you wherever. You've done so much for me. You died for me. You saved me from my sin. You've forgiven me. You've granted me eternal life. I'll follow you wherever you go. Because that seems like the right answer, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, if, if, if Jesus calls us to follow him, be his disciples, and then here you have somebody coming up to him as he passes by and say, I'll follow you wherever you go. That seems like the right thing to say, doesn't it? does to me but i want you to pay attention very closely to how jesus answers him because at first it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense he says the foxes have holes the birds have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and you know you first read that what this person just said i'll follow you wherever you go and now Jesus is talking about foxes and birds and he don't have a bed to sleep in. Well, here's what's going on there. Do you remember the first verse of last week's passage, Luke 9, 23? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. We've already talked about it a couple times, even this morning. You see, what Jesus is pointing out to this first individual is that I hear what you're saying I'll follow you wherever you go. I hear that. But I want you to understand something before you speak too quickly. I want you to understand, if you're going to follow me, I don't have a permanent home right now. See, Jesus left his home when he was uh, going out into the wilderness to meet John the Baptist, to be baptized, and to begin his earthly ministry. He left his home. And since that day and that moment, he didn't have a permanent dwelling place. 
And that's important because what Jesus is telling this individual is, you say you want to follow me, but just understand if you really want to do that, you're going to be giving up some comfort and some convenience because you're not going to be able to just stay at home and this is not a day job. This is not a clock in at 9 and go home at 5 and do some work during the day and then go back to your life. This is a leave everything behind, be uncomfortable, possibly be persecuted, encounter opposition, and follow me. So Jesus points out, he cuts right through. Jesus has a way in his earthly ministry, if you observe what he does and says, he has a way of just getting right to the point. He cuts through your, your excuses or your preloaded uh, resentment, things that you may not say, but he knows what you mean. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what's in your heart. You can, you can fool everybody in this room, but you can't feel God ever. You can't fool him, not one time. So he knows what this individual is saying and what's in his heart that he may not be ready to let go of. So he says, okay, you want to follow me wherever I go? Well, just understand, doesn't mean you're going to have a, a five-star hotel all along our travels you're going to give up some comfort and some convenience. So just think about that as you proclaim you're going to follow Jesus. The second scenario is a little different because now Jesus is saying to someone else. See, the first person came up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you. Now Jesus looks at someone else along the way and says, follow me. He issues the command. So you see what happens in verse 59, he said to another, follow me. But he said, now this individual says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now this one was one I struggled with initially because, I mean, does that sound wrong? It sounds honorable to me, right? Let me, can I, let me go bury my father first. But here's what we don't initially see in this story. We don't know for sure, according to Jewish history and the customs of the day, we don't know for sure that this gentleman's father has actually passed. What he is likely saying, according to historians, is that, well, his father is still alive, so he wants to wait until his father passes and then bury him. So he's trying to put off following Jesus. Jesus has told him, come follow me. And he said, well, first let me go bury my father. So this might be next week, next month, next year, 10 years, but not right now. So look, what, look at Jesus' response. This is really peculiar. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now this sounds to me... Well, gosh, Jesus, it's a little harsh, isn't it? It's a little harsh to, to say something like that. A man just wants to stay back and bury his father. But what Jesus is telling him is he's speaking to some urgency. He's speaking to priorities. He's talking about the length of time required by the culture for mourning a lost loved one. He's, he's identifying the idea that the man's father could 
still be alive or maybe is still alive and the fact that this particular person is neglecting the call of Jesus because his priorities are different. He, maybe he values his family more than he does Jesus. But here's the bigger point. There's all kind of different um, hypotheticals what could be going on here, but here's what is going on. When Jesus says in verse 60, allow the dead to bury their own dead, here's what he's saying. There's a spiritual disconnection. What he's saying is they're spiritually dead. And Jesus is talking about being spiritually alive. So there's a difference between a physical death and a spiritual death because a spiritual death is eternal. And so the spiritually dead are those who do not follow Jesus. So when Jesus says this to him, he's saying just understand that there's people who are going to carry out these customs whether you're there or not, and you need to go declare the kingdom of God because what did our brother Bonhoeffer say about the call of Jesus. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die, which means your priorities change. Uh, things that are most important are now not as important because Jesus is the most important. Now, let me just address one thing that's going to come up in this particular scenario because it always does. There's another part of Scripture in the Gospels where Jesus says... Anyone who loves father, mother, sister, brother more than me is not fit to be my disciple. Now, that relates to this passage because is Jesus honestly saying, don't love your family? No, not at all. Maybe I can explain it this way. The word love in the English language is really peculiar. Most, uh, most other languages uh, are very specific in the meaning of the word they use for love. In English, I can say in two sentences, one right after the other, I can say, I love my wife. And then right after that, I can say, I love barbecue. Now, both of those statements are true. But hopefully, they're not the same. Does that make sense? Hopefully... Nobody loves barbecue as much as they love their spouse. That would be bad. That would be misplaced priorities. Okay? But we, I love college football. Okay? But not the same. There's lots of things we love, but we have one word. Love. The Greek language has three words. And they all have different shades of meaning. So what Jesus is saying in that passage and in this one, he is saying... Do you love your family? Of course you do. But your love for Jesus should be so much higher than your love for anything else that your love for other things almost seems like hate compared to your love for Jesus. Does that make sense? Jesus doesn't want you to hate your family. Jesus doesn't want you to hate other people. He tells us to love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's part of our mission statement. Love God, love others, make disciples. So he doesn't want you to not love other people, other things. He's just making the point that when it comes to your love for Jesus, there should be no close second. 
Does that make sense? There should not be a rival competing for your love for Jesus on this earth. Jesus has no rivals. He has no competition. He is the only creator, savior, redeemer. He's the only one. There's only one God, and it's him. It's not me. It's not any of us. Therefore, he deserves and demands our love, our devotion above any other. Does that make sense? So Jesus isn't putting down this man's father. He's not putting down this, this man to, to want to go and bury his father. What he's saying is priorities. There are spiritually dead people who need the gospel, and I'm calling you to follow me, and you need to go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God, and you have to understand there are priorities. Do you remember the calling of all 12 disciples? Do you remember basically what happened with each one? Matthew's sitting at a tax booth. Come follow me. He's up and gone. Leaves everything sitting there. James and John were in the fishing boat with their daddy. They were fishing. That was a family business. He said, come follow me. What'd they do? Left their dad in the boat and they're gone. Does that mean they all of a sudden hate their dad? No, of course not. I'm sure it was a tough situation. I'm sure it was difficult. But the point is, the call of Jesus trumps everything else it has to because what it's going to do is the more you follow Jesus the more you're going to um, appropriately love other things in your life because Jesus is going to remember give you the desires of your heart he's going to order your priorities for you and so Jesus is saying to this individual prioritize you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of god now let's look at this last scenario another one says verse 61 i will follow you lord but now just it doesn't really matter what comes after that that particular conjunction because when you say to jesus i'll follow you but no see here's one thing that i've learned that i continue to have to learn and many of you probably have experienced the same thing. We don't put conditions on Jesus. That, it just doesn't work. He, he doesn't allow that. Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who died. He's the one who rose again. Therefore, he's the one who sets the conditions through which we come to him for salvation. We don't get to bargain. This is not a negotiation. When Jesus calls us, he calls us according to his terms. He is the victor. We are to surrender to him on his terms. You follow what I'm saying? That's not something we get to, to determine. We don't get to put that request in. Well, Jesus, I appreciate what you've done and what you're doing for me and that you've called me, you know, because I am so awesome. I appreciate you wanting me on your team. But there's just a couple things I've got a list here that I want you to consider about how I want to follow you. We don't get to do that. You know why? Because none of us is that awesome. None of us are in a position to say to Jesus, yeah, I like what you've done here, but I'd like to edit this part and this line and this part of this agreement. You know, I think that would suit me better. That's just not how it works. We don't get to 
set our demands before an almighty God. He's almighty. And I'm not. So when this person says, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Again, doesn't seem unreasonable, but we're talking about priorities. He wants to go home and say bye. And okay, I get that, but how about send him a postcard? You know, I'm just saying, that might be another alternative. But he says, I want to go say farewell to those at my home. And how does Jesus respond? This is one of the most clear word pictures that Jesus gives. How many of you, now I'm not talking about driving a tractor. I'm talking about walking behind a mule. How many has ever plowed before? It's, a little, it's about the same with a tractor, but it's, it's, it's different. When you set a, a single row plow attached to an animal and you're in charge of guiding that animal to produce the row you want to produce, you've got to focus. You've got to keep both hands on that plow and you've got to be focused on what you're doing Because what's going to happen if you take a hand off or if you turn around and look the other way? What's going to happen in front of you? Everything's going to be messed up. The animal's not going to do what you say. The road's going to be crooked. It's it's not going to work. When you get behind an animal to plow a a, a row, you've got to hang on and you've got to pay attention. Focus. Be completely focused. You can't be distracted. Jesus says in verse 62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, why would he say that? When you look away, when you're trying to plow, then your furrow is going to be crooked. When you're following Jesus and you're not paying attention, you're not focused, you're distracted, you're thinking about what you left, because what you maybe you're not following like you're supposed to, so everything you left behind is still occupying your thoughts, and so you're missing what you left behind. You're not looking ahead at what Jesus has for you in front of you. It's easy to get distracted from what is most important. And I don't know about you, but I mean, when you think about it, in terms of spiritual things, when you think about the Christian life and you think about Jesus has died for me, he took my punishment, canceled my debt, set me free from all that, freed me up to live a life that he has for me, He's granted me eternal life. And all that I'm leaving behind is sin and death and hell. Why would I want to turn around and look back at that? I'll tell you why. Because the serpent was more crafty than any other of the beasts of the field. And he'll just scatter your path with temptations and, and just, you know, you know this to be true as well as I do. I probably don't even have to tell you, but I will. 
if sin wasn't attractive, none of us would ever fall for it. You know, the devil's good at his job. His job is to mess us up and distract us and take us off of the, our path. And if he throws things in front of us that we don't care nothing about, <laughs> we're not going to follow it. So he has a tailor-made strategy for every single one of us. He's a keen observer over all of history. So he looks at you. He looks at your life, looks at your path, your decisions, your likes, your dislikes. And he tailor-makes a plan just for you to mess you up to cause you to sin or give you the opportunity to sin, to throw something in front of you that's going to look attractive and seem okay. And, you'll ha and here's how you know, all right? Here's how you know. Rarely is it one huge monumental sin. It's usually a series of a bunch of little things. And if you're not careful... You're going to look up one day and you think, how in the world did I get here? Meanwhile, the devil's off somewhere just laughing. That's how it works. You don't believe me? Think, just think about this. Have you ever thought or even muttered to yourself, this isn't that big a deal? This isn't, I mean, this isn't bad, is it? Have you ever asked somebody else? because you're trying to get support? <laughs> uh, this man, the devil's crafty, isn't he? Is, Preacher, is there anything wrong with this? Well, you just answered your own question. Why you got to ask me if something's wrong? Because you already think in your mind, you know, this is probably wrong, but I'm going to just see what he says. Yeah. The devil's slick. And if you're not paying attention... He'll mess you up. Be on your guard. Our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Does it sound familiar? There's distractions. There's hindrances. There's sin. There's temptation everywhere. Everywhere. You can't hardly get away from it. The only time we're going to be free from the presence of sin is when we're in heaven with Jesus. We're already delivered through Christ, through his sacrifice, we're delivered from the power and the penalty of sin, but we are not delivered yet from the presence of sin. It's everywhere. So Jesus would plead with us through this passage today, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, if you're going to follow Christ, once you put your hand to the plow, focus on the work. Focus on the plow. Focus on the, the direction. Better yet, focus on the one who's, who's done dropped the, the line of, of direction in front of you and told you where to go. Because if you follow Jesus and keep your eyes on Jesus, that's the whole point of what he's trying to say. If you're going to follow me, focus on me. Because if we, if we divert our eyes or our attention for just a moment, we're at risk. We're at risk. We've got to focus... We've got to pay attention to what we're doing. 
And here's the principle. All right, those were the three scenarios. Let me run through these principles. It's just one principle real quick that affects all three of these. The cost for following Jesus is higher than many people are willing to pay, period. The cost for following Jesus is higher than many people are willing to pay. Here's the three scenarios. The first person said he would follow, but he valued earthly comfort more than Christ because Jesus said, well, you might not have a place to, to sleep. You might not have a permanent home. So earthly comfort was the hindrance. The second one was commanded to follow, but he valued his earthly obligations more than Christ. Not necessarily bad, but everything in its proper place. The third said he would follow but he valued earthly relationships more than Christ. Let me go say bye. So the three, respons three responses that Jesus gave to each of these people, the first one, he says, following the Father is a higher priority to Jesus than earthly comfort. The second one, proclaiming the kingdom of God is a higher priority to Jesus than earthly obligations. And the third one, focusing on the harvest a higher priority to Jesus than earthly relationships. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Those things aren't bad. It's not a question of good and bad. It's a question of what's most important. There's lots of good things in this life if they're in their proper place. But I heard a preacher say one time, you take a good thing, you make it a God thing, this is your God, then it becomes a bad thing. So how does that affect us individually and as a church? Next week we're going to look more specifically at the church as a whole. Today and last week was more focused on us as individuals. But let me apply it this way. Uh, in December, first... Um, yeah, first Saturday in December, uh, I went up to Charlotte for the ACC championship football game. Now, this was a good example of this to me because I've been to football games. I've been to plenty of football games in good weather, sunny and everything. But this one, it was at night. It was cool. It was mist and rain. It had been raining most of the day. It was just dreary. It was not your perfect football Saturday that you dream of. But here's the thing. There was thousands of people there. The stadium was mostly full. And here's what I noticed. Everybody seemed to be happy to be there. Um, it looked like, at least, that they didn't have to be talked into attending. There was a considerable investment of time, and energy, money to be there. And all those things put together, it at least appeared to me that people put a high value on that whole experience, being there. I mean, you have to, like for me, you got to drive up to Charlotte, you have to have tickets, you have to have a place to park, you got to have food, you got to have, in this case, you got to have a rain jacket and whatnot and you know then you sit up there for a, a game three and a half hours 
But you know what? You know what you didn't hear? Well, except for maybe some of the Pittsburgh fans. You hear, you don't hear him complaining. Man, I can't believe I had to come up here and go to this football game. I didn't hear any of that. It was all people that was happy to be there, glad they went, didn't have any complaints. It was fun. They enjoyed it. So here's, here's how that applies to us. And people have used this illustration for years, and they probably will continue to because it's so obvious. How did you feel when you came here this morning? Were you excited to be here? Were you anticipating? I mean, I'm pretty sure nobody had to drive two hours to get here, but were you anxious to get here? Were you not worried at all about having to drive or get dressed up or what you'd have to do when you were here? Or when you leave today, are you going to be, man, I can't believe I had to go, go to church today. Are you going to be thankful? You're going to be you know, anxious to do it again? Because most people that go to football games, you know, it's enjoyable. The whole experience. And they're willing, they're lining up. There's a waiting list for tickets and parking and all that. You don't have to talk people into going to a ball game usually. So I just wonder how that affects, you know, or compares to coming to church. Are we just as excited? I notice the reactions aren't near in here like they are at a football game. Not a whole lot of hollering and hand raising and clapping and whatnot. You know, a little bit more a subdued crowd in this room than it is in a football stadium. And that's all right. I'd probably, I, don't, I wouldn't know what to think if you acted in here like you did at a football game. <laughs> I'd probably have to go check the sign outside to see what said on what kind of church I was at. But uh, no, I'm just playing mostly but the point is there's things in this world that get us way more excited than being in God's house with God's people I just I just wonder about that wonder if we might need to check our priorities a little bit are we really following Jesus with the same uh, energy and the same desire as we follow other things in our lives? And if we're not, what do we need to do about that? How do we need to change things up a little bit, maybe? That's a, that's a self-reflection question. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not one who can tell you what to do about that. That's something that each of us has to Consider for ourselves. See what God would have us do. But I know one thing. Jesus didn't hold back in what he did. He gave it all. Let's pray.